I'm always glad to be back. And always at the end of the time that we sit together that way, I more or less say the same thing about it's hard to give a Dharma talk that would be any more illuminating than just sitting with each other for the last five minutes. I'm always surprised about the numbers of things. It's like uh, if we sat here long enough and everybody mentioned what was on their mind, you start to have the things that happen to people. You start to hear the things that happen to people that you don't so much imagine will happen to people. Um, 59 is very young to have debilitating Alzheimer's. But my father's second wife had that. And it was extra hard because her body was vigorous and her face was beautiful and she looked young. And she really wasn't the same person. And it was really hard for her and for my father and for everyone. I didn't know about two children and Sir Francis Drake. What happened? I've, I've been out of town for... There was a car accident. Oh, three young men. Three young men. I did see a headline in one of the papers that I missed while I was away. One, well, this is as good a place to start as any. I really wanted to talk about these are uh, it's banal to say these are difficult times. The first noble truth of the Buddha is it's always a difficult time. It's always a difficult time. Somewhere, somewhere in the world, on a day that horrible news isn't happening globally or locally. Someone's being lost to somebody personally. Three young men aren't here anymore. Um, I've been away uh, teaching a little bit over part of last week, and I find that the story that comes back again and again to teach about is uh, the story about the... This is an old Zen story about a monk who's... uh, walking along in the jungle somewhere, serene of heart, and suddenly realize that there's a tiger behind him. How many people know this story? And they run. He, the monk runs. And he runs, and he, the tiger runs after him. And he runs to the edge of a cliff, and he can't go back. The tiger's approaching, and he can't go right or left. He has to jump over the cliff. But on the bottom is a yawning chasm and uh, rushing water and rocks way down there. As he jumps over the side of the cliff, he grabs hold of a vine that's growing down the cliff, and he holds on to it. And he's swinging on the vine over the side of the cliff. And he looks up, and the tiger is now looking down over the side of the cliff and growling at him. He looks down, and he sees the water down there. And he sees a bush right growing out of a a crack in the rock right in front of him with a um, berry on it. And the berry is ripe. And he takes the berry, picks it, and eats it. Says, this berry is terrific. And uh, I left out an important part. Remember what the part is? The mouse. He's hanging. He's hanging, and the mouse comes out, and the mouse starts gnawing at the vine. Then he sees the berry, and he eats it, and he says, this is a very good berry. The thing with that 
that particular story as I appreciate it more and more all the time because I think about it as uh, paradigmatic of all of us. We're all hanging on a vine. The parents of those three men did not get up this, that morning and think today is going to be a terrible day. But you don't know ever what's going to happen. Or people are afraid of something there. Say, I'm afraid of uh, flying on an airplane. And it's way more dangerous to be in a car, statistically, to be in a car going to an airplane than going up in an airplane on a, on a flight. So statistically, you should be worried about going to the airport. But you can't be worried about going to the airport. I mean, we, otherwise, we'd have to worry about everything. Oh, I see I brought one of my uh, Billy Collins books today, but I, I, I thought it had uh, Picnic and Lightning in it, but it doesn't. Uh, no, Picnic Lightning. Picnic Lightning starts, um, it is true that... Uh, Lightning often strikes, sometimes does strike a picnicker, and the uh, sometimes the the safe fallen from a high window in a high-rise office building does hit a pedestrian walking underneath. You know that those that cartoon about he comes a man walking along looking so self-satisfied, reading his doctor report, cholesterol good, blood pressure good, this good, that good, the other thing good. And from a high window, one of those big office safes has fallen out the window and is on its way down to hit him in the head, but he's feeling so good about himself because his cholesterol is good. If your cholesterol is good or bad, it's the same if a safe falls on you or you're in a plane... You don't know. It's all extremely tenuous. And if we and what what I think to myself is when I remember that it's extremely tenuous, which I do sometimes more than others. What, Susan? No, it doesn't have that one either. I, yeah. Uh, well, one day we'll have a Billy Collins day. This is about Billy Collins saying about being in the present and what's so great about that. But there is some something to be said about that. I'll read it in a little while, maybe. Um, but to say you never know what's going to happen, and you can't really stay home. That's not a life either. To live a life, you have to say we are all vulnerable. So if it's not about staying home and protecting your body, what about what about being in a life has some worthwhile thing? And I, I want to venture to say that it's protecting your heart by connecting it to other people, and that which you can do at home or out or ever. One of the things that's been true, my son did have an aortic valve transplant, and uh, uh, I didn't. I thought about mentioning it to a, we. I haven't been here in four weeks. I think a long time. And I thought about mentioning it in the prayers the last time we were here. And I decided not to. I mentioned it in my own mind and heart. A little bit because I didn't want you to worry about me while I was gone. And I wouldn't be here to tell you that it had gone all right. Went through my mind. Maybe it was that. And maybe I didn't want to say out loud my, my son is having an aortic transplant. Because that's a big mouthful to say. And truth to tell, I did not ask until the day after it was done, how exactly did you do that? Because how exactly is amazing. Uh, anybody here has had an aortic transplant? It's not so rare. Yes? Mechanical one.
That's terrific. Actually, Michael had a pig valve put into him. And apparently pigs are so close to people that you don't have to take those transplant drugs. A friend of mine told me, he'll probably be great, he said. And don't worry if you hear an occasional oink, oink. So the, the <laughs> And somebody else said, how are you going to manage? Because, you know, how, how do Jews feel about having a pig valve in their body? Because pigs are a, a forbidden animal to Jews. And so it feels great about having a pig valve in his body. And the uh, the person who put the pig valve in his body, who's a very, very, very well-respected sur- cardiac surgeon, is a Muslim. So a Muslim cardiac surgeon put a pig valve in a Jewish guy, and everybody feels good about it. <laughs> Except maybe the pig. Maybe the pig didn't feel so good about it. But, but uh, it, it's fine they, it, so far. Um, but uh, the the way in which we protect ourselves from thinking, we tell ourselves stories, or we tell the what the chances are uh, one out of uh, X hundred doesn't work. But then you think, if you're that one person, it's a hundred percent of the people. So you know that you, you watch the mind how it tries to construct uh, ways to be at ease. And I think the way to be at ease is to say you don't know. Most of the, you know, this should be good, and I hope so. And you never know. that You really never know. What I keep thinking about with you never know, especially in the experience, I know this is another reason why I wanted to tell you that right then. When you go to the hospital to go to the, uh, to visit somebody who's just had this kind of surgery, you walk past rooms with people who in in this case in Kaiser Hospital in San Francisco is a special ward for people who have had cardiac surgery. So everybody in all these rooms has just had some manner of intervention with a special heart team that knows how to deal with it. And you look in each room and there's a person in a bed and people standing around it, a person in a bed, people standing around it. And... uh, uh, instinctively, you lower your voice because you realize everyone here is in a very sensitive position, not only physically the person who's had this, but the people around them, that their minds are very, very on the high-intensity uh, um, attention. So you lower your voice. And I think about the whole world is in jeopardy, if not from this election, from... Uh, the kinds of climate changes that are already happening. And if the whole world could just lower their voice and talk to each other with care, it's a, it's a little bit uh, simplistic to say, well, let's take that as a model. Everybody is sick. This planet is sick. We could all lower our voices, calm down. Somebody said about, uh, wait, wait, who were the people who were going to Iran? Eritrea or somebody? Eritrea? No. Somebody mentioned people from somewhere. Fiji. Somewhere. Oh, it was Lynn then who mentioned it. Fiji, who met with Taliban. And they lower their voice. And you lower your voice, people become unfrightened, and you talk to each other. I was thinking sometimes when we talk about the upcoming election here, and people are a little tense, I talk about it in a more or less as if we're all voting for the same person. And that may not be true. And I really don't want to put anybody in the position to say I am voting differently. 40 million people are voting differently, apparently. Some of them might be here. And I was thinking about the fact that when we talk about it, probably everybody feels fairly relaxed, like those people couldn't be in this room. But they could, with other reasons for doing it. My brother-in-law is voting differently from me. And um, and one of the uh, challenges... Uh, my husband and I have is he's my brother-in-law and um, I don't want to not love him 
I, you know, I knew him when he was 10 years old. That, I think, is how is somehow uh, how the Fijians can go to Iran, how the people in Israel who I know who are rabbis for, rabbis for human rights is what they're called, and in this uh, season of harvest, but just about over, in the harvest season, uh, cross over and help the Palestinian olive farmers with harvesting the olives because they're sometimes harassed in the harvesting by settlers, by Israeli settlers who um, harass them in the harvesting, sometimes hurt them. However, if uh, enough people go over who are Jews, Israelis, and get in the trees with them and help them harvest, then the they protect them by their presence. How do people get to do that and have that kind of steadfastness of heart that not only says this is what's happening, but I can, I can uh, affect it. So really my question has been all week long talking in different places uh, about how do we keep our morale something workable. What gives, uh, I said a lot, I said what gives me pleasure is uh, the fact that every group that I sit with, that I end the sitting by saying, let's talk about the people who are on, my, on your mind. That the fact that people say, so-and-so is on my mind for this, and so-and-so is on my mind for that. And I recognize in myself when somebody says, so-and-so is on my mind because of this and this, and it's not a this and this that I have personally in my life right now or that I even know who said it because I don't look around. I knew it was Liz cause I, uh, Lynn because I knew she was in Fiji, but otherwise, and I know her voice, but if I don't know the voice of the person, I don't know who it is, but I feel that my heart moves when I hear about somebody. Don't you feel that in you? I'm sure you do. That's such a reassuring thing to me. I don't have to know the person who's saying it. I don't know, I have to know the person who has it. I don't even have to have heard of that before. Really, people who are 59 get Alzheimer's, they do. Babies get uh, ir un untractable high fevers. Their parents must be terrified with that. And you feel it in yourself. It's such a reassurance for me that we are, we are actually strung to be compassionate. We feel other people's stuff in our body and in our mind. And I think to myself, that's the part that makes me feel that short of this planet doing itself in, everybody will suddenly think, wait a minute, this really could be my family and it could be me. And it is me in a certain way. And that makes a difference. I'll read you why I brought It's Easier Than You Think. Easier Than You Think is a book I, it's a book I, I wrote more than 20 years ago. I'm so surprised to find. Doesn't seem, does not seem so long ago. But somebody, um, somebody, when I was away teaching this week, reminded me of this. They said, I take so much I take, I take a lot of courage, this woman said, from the second and a half noble truth. So I thought, ah, <laughs> did that surprise you, Andrew? That surprised me too, and I wrote it <laughs> 30 years ago. Why is it surprising? Because there, is there a second and a half noble truth? No, there are four. The first is that life is by its very nature... Um, not able to, uh, always unstable, un, well, they used to say unsatisfactory, but um, as, a, as a, uh, a translation from the Pali word dukkha. But I didn't like that because unsatisfactory was a grade that people got in grade school. We got a U or a S. Unsatisfactory or satisfactory. I got the only U I ever got in my school life in the second grade, yeah, I got a U in works and plays well with others. 
I hurt my feelings so much that I'm 80 years old. I remember about that. You, and I probably didn't work and play so well with others, but uh, I was an only child. I didn't know how to work and play well with others. I didn't annoy them. I just didn't interact with them appropriately, I guess. I don't know. But it hurt my feelings. But anyway, when the Duke is translated as unsatisfactory, that doesn't seem right. I think it means that we can't relax. It's just not a relaxing thing to be alive. And the actual uh, etymology of the word dukkha in Pali, it's like it's just not quite right. And uh, it, it has a connection to the word that describes how it feels to ride, ride in a cart that's drawn by a horse and made with wooden wheels, with wooden wheels over rocky terrain, Somebody said to me recently, who had traveled in uh, in uh, rural India, he said, did you ever go in a cart with wooden wheels over rocky terrain? I said, no, I actually haven't. He said, it's like that. It has something to do with an axle that doesn't quite smoothly rotate around. There's always something, you know. You could be pregnant and... Um, somebody told me the other day of a devastating event that she had because her first of her twins got born in a in a regular straightforward way and the second which was aimed to come out also head first when the first one came out suddenly turned around well first one came out and the other one turned around which i guess they sometimes do and what had ensued which was a little bit dramatic both came out fine in the end but you never know in the middle of having fantastically healthy twins, you have a little crisis. In the middle of driving down Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, you don't know. You just don't know, ever. So it's just, you can't say, phew, this is going to be perfect. You know what it's like? When I was a child, I used to visit my grandmother, who was kind of semi-invalided, and spent a lot of time listening to um, soap operas. And I used to wait 15 minutes this, 15 minutes that. Did you, did you have mothers who listened to the soaps? Anybody? Grandmothers. Our gal, my, our gal Sunday. Uh, Helen, the romance of Helen Trent. You know, the romance of Helen Trent said, this is a romance of Helen Trent. This is a story that asks the question, can a woman find romance in life at 35 or older? That's true, my grandma, because I was old in those days, you know. That, and she listened, and every time that I hung out with her and I'd listen, they'd have crises: this crisis, that crisis, this crisis, that crisis. And then when I, and I thought, well, that's what. Is, and later on, soap operas came on on TV as well, and they always have crises. But if you look at it. They so does life always have crises if we tell. Maybe they have a little bit closer to each other the crises. But anyway, someone told me that they took a lot of courage from the second and a half noble truth. First noble truth is life is you can't relax because it's always worrisome in some way. And the second noble truth is that we suffer in life because. Uh, we, we, it's hard for us to accept things as they are, that we struggle. We always want to make it a little better or a little more or a little less. That uh, Sometimes you can fix things. It doesn't mean not being proactive in your life. But contentment is a very rare thing. There's, if you search the world over, there's one thing you'll find. There's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. We're always trying to fix things up a little bit. So the second noble truth is the cause of suffering is not fixing things up a little bit. Cause of suffering is imperative that it has to be different. You know, I'm not so comfortable about how the election is looking now, but I can make it through till next week, and I can make it through after next week, regardless of what happens. Everybody here can, but not so happily, maybe if it's one way or another. If it was an imperative in the mind... When I was a child, it was imperative that one's children did not marry outside the faith. That was a very strong thing in the group of immigrant people that I lived amongst. And when someone did, 
you pretended that they had died. You had a funeral service, and you didn't talk to them anymore. And I think about the suffering that got caused in life because people would have had to otherwise say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And that ability to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. Now I'll make the best out of that. It's my child, after all. It's changed since then. But really the word is not wanting things different. You know, every time we get a catalog, how many people get 10 catalogs every day in the, re- in the mail now? Uh, do you throw them all out right away and recycle right away? Or do you look through them and think, oh, recycle, 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 recycle. Ah, look at this one. This looks a little interesting. You never do that? How many people read a catalog yesterday? I did. Because, <laughs> you know, you see something and you think, ah. Really what the third noble truth is that peace is possible. It doesn't mean oh, peace is possible. It means the mind does not get stuck in longing to have things other ways. It doesn't get stuck in the longing to not be frightened of anything. The Buddha taught that the end of suffering was possible. Usually you say that life is suffering, the cause of suffering is desire, the end of suffering is possible, here's the eightfold path to practice. But I think they really need to be all talked out. Oh, it's the third and a half noble truth, not the second and a half. The Buddha taught that the end of suffering was possible. He could, we could, he taught, condition the mind to such spacious clarity that our experience would come and go in a great sea of wise and spacious mind. Pain and joy would come and go, being pleased and being disappointed would come and go. The mind would remain essentially tranquil. It's incredibly freeing to know you don't need to be pleased in order to be content. That's an important line, that you don't need to be pleased in order to be content. People, all, all the time are able to say, well, this isn't what I wanted, or I'm sad, but I'm okay. It was a big, uh, it was an important, um, I don't know how I want to set this. I feel all right about going to funerals, some funerals. I went to the funeral of my 85-year-old friend, Elvira, the other day. And her grandchildren, who are six years old, she has twin grandchildren. Her grandchildren were standing next to the hearse and the door was open and the coffin was in it. And they had prepared since the day before when Elvira had died, they prepared all these drawings. They had crayoned all these drawings that they'd made for Elvira that they wanted to put in her coffin with her. And they were trying to stick it in through the, the, you know, but the coffin lid was down and the, they were there with their mother. And here came the the mortuary director and he said, oh, do you want to put those in with your grandmother? And they said, yes. So he opened it and picked it up and they put all the pictures in it. And you could see that wrapped in a shroud, Elvira was in that coffin. And one of them said, uh, uh, is that my grandmother? And uh, I guess it was, the rabbi was standing near me. She said, yeah, it is. She said, but really, it's your grandmother's body. It's the, the part of your grandmother that thinks about you and that you'll think about. She's not in there. She's all over the place. And really, she's mostly in your heart. I said, oh, okay. They put in some more pictures. And they closed the coffin. And we went up to the burial place. And uh, one of the things that Jews do as part of the burial ritual is after they've talked and made eulogies and made prayers for the well-being of Elvira's soul and all those things, is they lower the casket into the grave, which has been prepared. And everybody who's there who wants to files by the grave site and it's been dug up, so there's a big pile, a mound of 
soil that's up there. And everybody goes by and is invited to take a handful or two of the earth and throw it in the grave so that it's... uh, People talk about it in many ways, like it makes it real for you. You can't say, uh, you can't put off feeling this is what happens, that it's a healthy thing to do. It's like saying, I realize this is really gone. Some people think it uh, has a, a mystical meaning about it. Some people think it's the literal fulfillment of uh an injunction in the prayer book that says among the the tasks that it's incumbent uh, for an adult person to do is to bury the dead. So I think it's a literal, um, it's a literal translation of everybody buries a little bit. And the the six-year-old twin grandchildren did that. I was there uh, 14 months ago when they did it on their grandfather's grave. And they just, matter of fact about it, not put out by it. And then as you leave the cemetery, there's a fountain for washing hands, and people wash their hands. And it's not about getting the mud off, I think. Uh, it's it's meant to mark, mark a transition. Okay, that's finished. Now I'm going to do the rest of my life, and I wash my hands, prepare myself to start again. I was thinking that it was good for those children to see that these are, this is what happens with people. My sense of knowing, not only that all of a sudden, calamitously, like those men, or like everybody else who dies in an untimely way, not only knowing that people can die untimely, but knowing that everybody dies is really the, the key piece to making the most of your life. I think that's the important lesson that when you when you hear a eulogy where they talk about how, how where numbers of people talk about how much they love that person and how much that person loved them you have a good feeling about it and especially if you have a feeling that life is life is not interminable you get a long time I saw an opera 3 weeks ago called the Macropolis case Anybody saw the Macropolis case? Nobody knows about it. It's a uh, you saw it. Well, you know what happened. I saw it this time. It was the third time I'd seen it. I saw it X many years ago, and Y many years ago, and I didn't get it the first two times. Did you? I'll tell you why. It's very confusing. Except this time, I got it. I thought it was great. They have wonderful singers, very um, extraordinary kind of staging. The Macropolis case is a mythical story about a, a, a woman in 1550, in the year 1550, who's uh, somewhere from a Czech province. Uh, it's written by Jana Czech, who's a Czech composer, whose uh, father has commissioned the court sorcerer to prepare an elixir of life. So if anybody drinks it, they will never die. And he's still working on that particular elixir. It's unperfected, but the king's daughter falls terribly ill. And it looks like she's going to die. So the king says, well, you know, it's like skipping the trials. Uh, let's just give it to the daughter and see what happens. They give it to the daughter. She falls unconscious and a month later, according this all happens before it starts. You hear it in history. She is revived, and she never dies. And she stays young and beautiful. Not, not childish and beautiful, but a mature and a very beautiful woman through eons of time. And somehow it's unclear about how she moves from one venue to another. But by the time the opera opens and you meet her in her current iteration, which is contemporary, she's been uh, partnered with some grandee in Spain and with somebody else somewhere else, a nobleman here and this kind of a person there and another kind of a person there. And always they were relationships that were full of passion and that 
didn't didn't live out well. And then somehow, often she left people and they were very unhappy. And somehow it comes to pass that they all are gathering back around her at this time. I think because the elixir is now wearing off and uh, she's making some effort to get the formula for the elixir so she can take it again. By the time it ends and she has interacted with all these people whom she caused such heartache to, she has enough realization. She says, among other things, she says, if there's no life and death, then nothing matters. And uh, if there's no life and death, she says, then there's nothing precious because you can't lose anything. You, you, you don't lose anything. And you have to have something that you'll lose, you could lose, for it to be precious and for it to matter. Is that in order for things to be precious to you, you have to know that they are time-limited, and then they become precious to you. And you can see that she has a kind of remorse for the people whose lives she's hurt. She's in the middle of not mattering whether you live or die, she says, it doesn't matter if you're good or it doesn't matter if you're bad. They're both equally tedious roles to play. You just have to think about which one you want. But they're both equally tedious. They're not going anywhere. They're not making any difference because you don't have a sense of urgency based on we're together for a certain amount of time and no more. I found it very, very compelling. Yeah, I'm writing, I was writing down again all my my thoughts from it. I have it here somewhere. I'll read it to you. But I want to read you about the third and a half noble truth. Pain and joy would come and go. Being pleased and being disappointed would come and go. The mind would remain essentially tranquil. It's incredibly freeing to know that you don't need to be pleased in order to be content. However... The end of suffering hasn't happened for me yet. This is me 20 years ago. I could say the same thing now. It's not from a lack of right aspiration. I aspire. Nor is it from not understanding. I believe with all my heart that freedom is possible. That's true. I know that the tendency to struggle in the mind comes from taking one's own story personally rather than seeing it as part of a great unfolding cosmic drama. I know for sure that everything is conditioned and I more or less believe in karma. I do believe in karma. Not in retributive karma because you did this, now you get that. I believe that things happen because other things happen. Nevertheless, I struggle, that's true, and I suffer. I suffer less than I used to though and I'm not as distraught about the suffering as I used to be. So I have added an extra half of noble truth, a third and a half noble truth. Extra half truth is suffering is manageable. The second truth, the, the, the second truth, or the third, a page back, is suffering is optional. If you see clearly that suffering, that struggle causes suffering, you stop struggling and you don't suffer. So I am adding the third and a half. Suffering is manageable. Short of coming to the very end of suffering, which I absolutely have faith in as a possibility, I am content with managing my suffering better. I'm not as frightened of the pain when I suffer as I used to be. These days I often tell students that although the Buddha taught the end of suffering is possible, I myself am not there yet. They are not dismayed, nor do I seem to lose any credibility. It's great news for everyone to hear that suffering is manageable. That extra half noble truth, everyone is suffering, keeps me more compassionate towards myself and towards others. I can see how I get trapped in my stories, how I struggle, how I suffer, how I wish I didn't, how ultimately things change and resolve. I'm kinder to myself when I see how much pain I storm up in my mind through my own condition clinging. Acknowledging my own suffering in spite of the years of practice and whatever wisdom or understanding I might have makes me sensitive to what must be the enormous pain of all the people I'm sharing this planet with. Everybody's making the best. Of it. Everybody's doing the best thing. My brother-in-law is voting the way he is. Who knows why? 
Everybody's voting the way they are because they're the person that they are. Nobody is saying, well, I really feel otherwise, but I'll vote this just like that. And everybody feels about it one way or another. If they feel and I think, oh, their feeling is wrong, well, it's not, it's not for me to know. Wait, 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 wait. This is the other thing I really wanted to tell you today. First of all, who already voted? Did you feel good when you voted? I did, because I felt I couldn't possibly make a mistake and forget to vote now. I voted. Uh, I also read very carefully all of those amendments. They're hard to read because those propositions, because they're worded in such a way that if you want something, you may accidentally be voting against it because of the way that it's worded. I actually ended up calling my friend Tony Bernhard. Do you remember Tony Bernhard who wrote How to Be Sick? Tony Bernhard is a former law professor at UC Davis who had to give up her teaching because of her chronic fatigue. Uh, Tony, so I called Tony and I said, you have to read these with me. I need a lawyer mind and tell me who, what, what these means. And, and she said, okay, but you have to call me back later because now I have to go back and study. So I'm, I'm sure I spent a lot of time on the propositions, and I think I voted the way I want to. Uh, Tony's husband, uh, Tony Bernhard, teaches... How many people have heard Tony teach? Tony is great. Tony is coming here to teach next week. It says me, and I thought it would be me. I was actually looking forward to it being me, it being the morning after the election. But I had the opportunity to be in Mexico teaching with my daughter for a week. And I thought about it. I, uh, but then I, th I, call, I phoned Tony, man Tony, not the woman Tony. And Tony uh, is also, uh, Tony is. Uh, I don't know if he's got a law degree or a PhD in sociology, but he was for 16 years the election official for Yolo, Yolo County. So I said, Tony, you could talk about election fraud and how elections work and how it all worked. You would be the most knowledgeable person for the morning after. Talk about it. Because he's also a very distinguished Dharma teacher and teaches a group up and Sacramento, that's very good. He said, I miss your people. I'd like to be there. So Tony will be here next week. I felt a little bad about not being here myself. I felt like sort of honor-bound to be here, but I felt like Tony was a better... Tony was a good substitute, not a better one, a good substitute. And truth to tell, I didn't want to be here next week. I just thought it was a... I thought it was a great possibility to be a little bit out of the intensity. I'm waiting to feel embarrassed about telling you that, but I feel all right. <laughs> you know what? I don't feel embarrassed about it because it's true. It's true. And it, it, if I tell you, I've, I've read a book. Wait, wait, wait. This is the ongoing book club. This is Alain de Botton, The Course of Love. Anybody read this? You read it? Yeah. Did you read it? It's very good. It's very good. It's, it's, a, it's a, let me, well, it, it might be worth telling you about it. It's a story about two people who fall in love and marry. That's it. Uh, and when they and they, it reads like a novel, they met, they did this, they did that, and all along, on each page practically, there's the ongoing discourse unfolding about she said and he said and they did this, and then there's a paragraph that's in italics, 
And this is the voice of the narrator who's telling the story, who's now telling you psychologically what's happening, why when they meet each other, they suddenly feel so much in love with each other that they really get it, that the other person seems genuinely to be looking at them and seeing them. So the, the, the voice in the italics is the, uh, is the psychologist who's explaining how you fall in love and what keeps you confident about the love and what makes you unconfident. And even early in the, in the very book, you, you have the, the, the sense that they're probably going to get married and stay married and they'll have all kinds of things. They'll have children, they'll have affairs, they'll have this, they'll have that, they'll have the other, but they're going to come out the other end, like everybody, like everybody. Not everybody has an affair, but I'm pretty sure everybody thinks about, at least in the course of a long marriage, or the thought goes through them, or they hear about somebody else who did, and think, oh, I mean, every once in a while you have a thought of um, less than wholehearted good thought about your partner, and it goes through your mind, what if I had another one who didn't do this? Everybody's looking like I'm the only person who ever had a thought like that. <laughs> Anybody ever had a thought like that? You had a thought like that? So you go someplace, you go to a party, you meet a super person who seems in every way, including the way that your person doesn't seem so super, they're super. You have a thought. So I'm telling you, in the end, they actually stay together, confident. And really, it's a book about relationship and how it builds. And it builds, there was a, the first line that I underlined was uh, uh, had to do with they have this really they're totally there for each other and they're totally relaxed with each other and time is going on and they're just so at ease with each other and uh, I, I want to do this line is so so important that I want to do it right. There's something, all of a sudden there's something that he says that is a little offensive to her, and he gets it, that it was offensive, and he backs off it, and, and it's all right, and they go on. But there's a line that says... Uh, but, and they never talk about it. Uh, and it becomes the first of the, of the secrets that they don't quite say to each other. And it says, um, they, talked, they didn't talk about it. They let it pass. They went to the cinema and had a thoroughly nice evening together. And in the engine room of their relationship, a warning light had come on. I give you a really a like da da in the engine room of their relationship, a warning light had come on, and they go on to talk about how there's this little break in their connection, and once you have a little break, you think, uh oh, did that happen to me? When did that happen to me? And I said it to you just now. I, I knew I wanted to tell it to you at some point because I'm very touched by the idea of being truthful with each other. I right away will tell you one more story that means not so truthful that you undo yourself. But, but that truthful is a big thing. And I was very touched by that. In the engine room of their relationship, a warning light went on. Like that could be the beginning. On the other hand, I want to tell you... So I think it's a very good book. It's called The Course of Love. I don't see it around anyway. I bought it from, uh, through Amazon because somebody I admired suggested it to me. Um, many years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, in the 1990s, I was invited to, um, about 1990 probably, I was invited to teach at, a, um, at an Esalen-type place up in, uh, in Washington State. And 
I, I want to say Esalen in a very uh, respectful way because I teach at Esalen now. And Esalen began, uh, it was in the 1970s and 80s, and it had a very big ethos in uh, uh, groups where you'd be in an encounter group and everybody would say absolutely everything that they thought about the people in the group, and that especially about their partners in the front of the whole relationship. And there was a period of, we never went, my husband and I, we were both very shy people and uh, conflict avoidant. So we were both way too terrified to go to a thing like that. And later on, we used to say to ourselves, we think that our relationship survived because we never went to an encounter group and uh, let it all hang out. I don't want to be hurting anybody's feelings who went to an encounter group and it broke up their relationship. But they were they were really very quite brutal in, in back in the day where there wasn't a lot of sensitivity about saying something that was could be potentially very embarrassing or very painful in front of a whole group is not always so skillful. So in the middle of that period, I was invited to teach mindfulness. I was invited to teach some, whole, no, no. I was invited to teach intensive journal keeping, which is what I did in a former lifetime before the mindfulness teaching came up. And I was very happy to go up to uh, Canada. It was, I was on one of those islands uh, uh, off the coast of Vancouver. I was very happy to be there. It was beautiful. It's a long trip to get there. Once you get there, you can't just easily leave and come home because you have to take uh, uh, several jets and then you have to take a boat and then you have to take yet littler boats or a um, float plane to get there. So by the time you get there, you really feel like you're doing something heroic. And I get there and I have the first meeting with the group that night and it was a week-long teaching in the middle of a three-month teaching that all of these people had signed up for where the ethos was we'll use each other for a sounding board and everybody will say everything. We'll meet every day. We'll have an encounter group. Everybody will say what they think about everything. If they need to get it off their chest, they will. So I come to this group and I was the specialty group for that week. And the very first night, I said, I think it's a very wise thing to have a, uh, to have a, 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 a practice of keeping a personal journal. Because after all, I said, you know, there are, even with your nearest and dearest, there are some things that you just want to keep to yourself. That was a very unacceptable thing to say. It was just sort of, sort of like declared her heresy in the middle of a group of people where the where the dogma is you let it all hang out you become real everybody really loves you but you know i i kind of thought i mean i had my own life experiences i certainly don't keep a lot of secrets from my person but sometimes to protect him or to protect me not every last little thought or feeling or idea has to get put out on the table i think so I say that the first night, you know, that the, and having a journal is a really safe way and private for you to talk to yourself about that. And I realized something very not good has happened in the room at that point. So, so then we're talking about, that's what we're going to do that week. We're going to write in a journal and teach these various techniques for exploring your own psyche. So somebody says, uh, you mean even your husband doesn't know every single thing about you? So I said, no, you know, particularly, I mean, he knows, I mean, we, I feel like we have, uh, I feel like we have an intimate relationship, but every single thing doesn't seem to be necessarily helpful for him to know. Okay, but I can see that they are already not with me. And... It was the worst week I've ever had of teaching anywhere. It was terrible. I had really defamed, uh, uh, inadvertently defamed their whole credo. And I had to be there a whole week with them, all day, every day. And they kind of tried, and I kind of tried. I don't know what I did. And, you know, I, I stumbled through the week, but I was, and it wasn't, the, it was before the days of cell phones. So I felt like, help, I'm stranded on this island in the middle of Canada. I have nobody to talk to. Nobody, you know, I couldn't call home. It was a, it was a hard week. 
normally, well, anyway, that's it. It was a hard week. So I'm happy to tell you that the Buddha said, wise speech is speech that's truthful and helpful. It's not that it's everything. It's truthful and helpful. Helpful. And actually, sometimes when there's something that you feel, oh, I'll just get this off my chest, I'll feel better. It's so you'll feel better, not that the other person will feel better. And they don't usually feel that all much better from it. So really, to be thoughtful. I hope this week goes really well for all of us. I kind of think it'll be okay. And I really, what? This Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, there's a synchronized meditation that wherever you are, you can participate in. From 4 to 4.15, just bringing focus and meditative positive energy on the election process, on the wish and the hope for peace and a good process and a good result, whatever that means, but bringing your thoughtful, positive energy to that process. And that might be a way for us all to be in a, a positive, calm, peaceful place in relation to the process. So if it doesn't help anybody else, it can help us. I forgot to say that on the Sunday after the election, on the, what is it? Whatever it is, it's the Sunday after election in the Unitarian Church in um, San Rafael on Channing Way. Uh, I'll be there along with a number of other people at four, I think. I just got the invitation this morning that that there's a, um, a happening earlier in the day out of Washington, D.C., a day of... Uh, peace and reconciliation, whatever the result. Uh, and a lot of people, including Michelle Obama, et cetera, et cetera, are going to be speaking in Washington, and it's going to be live streamed. And then at uh, it ends at um, whatever, I guess, 1 o'clock there, because at uh, 4 o'clock I am speaking here, and different local people will be in local churches. So... If you go to the Unitarian Church, or if you want to go to the Unitarian Church, I would be really happy to see you there that day. Yeah. The uh, angst that I um, hear and feel around the, elect the election actually brings to mind a couple of things. Uh, the first is that today is actually a good day to say some meta for the Chicago Cubs fan. <laughs> okay, who's waited quite a long time to have the opportunity to win the World Series, for those of you who don't know that. And the second thing is, for those of you who don't know this, a friend of mine bring uh, this fact, this is a fact, uh, uh, to my attention, that <clears throat> no Republican ticket has won the election for, I think, was it Woodrow Wilson? I was, it's, it's 80 years unless there has been either a Bush or a Nixon as president or vice president on the ticket. Huh? It's, Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? I hope we, everybody, I hope to see you in the Unitarian Church. That seems like a good thing. And I hope it's an all right uh, I hope it's an all right election. We were so excited the last time. I remember that... Um, I, do you remember being there? Because, no, in, in, in 2008, when I came with all the morning newspapers and uh, the fact that an African-American man had been elected president was so excited to everybody. And somebody said, listen, can we still be Buddhists and cheer? I remember that. So there's a big cheer about it. Um, so we can still be Buddhists and cheer. We were Buddhists and cheered. Buddhists do everything and vote, vote. Uh, 
I hope it goes all right. And I hope that there isn't any disturbances anywhere for anybody. I am, uh, I'm hoping that nobody gets hurt in this whole thing. Yeah. Can you, can you remind us again about the time and place? You know, I wish I saw it. I'm pretty sure it said 2 o'clock California time. I don't know, 4 o'clock California time. But if you're thinking about going, call the Unitarian Church or look on it. Anybody goes to the Unitarian Church? I'm going home. What I'll do is I'll go home, I'll look it up, and I will tell the administration here, and they will put it on the website of Spirit Rock so that the whole Spirit Rock community will know it would be great to come to the Unitarian Church. I wanted to thank you um, for talking about this today. I'm traveling with my mother-in-law, who is voting very different from myself, and she lives in Florida, which is a very vulnerable um, state. And next week I'll be with my sister, who um, she's my sister and I love her so much. And she votes very differently from me. And, and it's very hard. It's very hard. My brother-in-law's in Florida as well. Oh, God. Yeah. So that makes it, the whole Florida thing makes it double hard. My sister in Kansas, you know, it's a little easier. But um, it's a struggle. It's but a very hard thing because, uh, among other things, it's become n nobody. Are, people are not adversaries anymore. They're enemies. And I think that the the story behind the incredulity is that there's a link in the mind between that choice is a catastrophic choice, not just an economic difference choice. It's a catastrophic choice. But um, at, a, at a time in, in the history of the world where uh, the world's in a really, really challenged position, um, it's probably more challenged globally in terms of the global warming than anything else. But uh, so it seems like more and more important. But you know, since I have nothing, here's what I think about with my brother-in-law. I know I'm getting better about it because I heard that he was kind of asking around about could he come out for Thanksgiving, and I didn't. I you know I just as I'd be too tense. Everybody will won't feel good. And this morning I found myself thinking, you know, he'll be lonesome. Maybe he should come for Thanksgiving. And I realized that I was thinking more about he's my relative and I wish him well. I wish he'd vote otherwise, but I wish him well and I don't wish for him to be lonesome on Thanksgiving. And I feel better thinking that thought if he wants to come on Thanksgiving. He knows he's coming on his own. <laughs> have to take care of himself. I mean, he knows how the land lies here, but I'm, I'm also counting on the fact that everybody's very well behaved as you are. Nobody will say anything to him about it. And we'll feel good about that. Noon to three. It says on their website, it's from noon to three on so that, that's great Sunday the 13th. That's great to know. I wonder why I thought I, I got an email this morning that said go at four. That well, it's very possible that, you know, their website might be wrong, but that's what it says. No, so. no, thank you very, very much. Look at the website. Be fun. We'll see each other there. We'll all say hello to each other. I don't get to be back for a while, but then I get to be back for a while. So that's good. I, I like that. Before Thanksgiving, anyway, I am back. I'll see you there at the Unitarian Church. How about that? May all beings... May all beings take care of each other, for goodness sake. That might be the shortest dedication of merit that I've ever done, for goodness sake. I uh, was kind of funny. I didn't know I was going. I did not know I was going. And, uh, I said, well, I'm 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.